This week on the show, I have something a little different than my typical format. This is the first of the interview shows. I thought it would be interesting to talk to some people in the industry from time to time, whether they're in the industry or just related to it or doing something interesting related to spaceflight and exploration or any of the topics that we bring up on the show from time to time. Uh, So we'll have more interviews in the future as different events happen, as I come in contact with different people that might be interesting to talk to on this show. But first up, we have Logan Campershire. He's a graduate research assistant at the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics at Purdue University. His research is focused on hypergolic rocket fuels, and specifically the push to move away from toxic storable propellants like we use today with hydrazine and its derivatives, to greener alternatives that we might use in the future. So we're going to talk about the current state of storable propellants as well as the near future and where we could see things going over the next decade. I do also just want to apologize up front for any technical issues we might have with Skype. The audio seems to be dropping in and out, as is typical with Skype, but we will do our best to make sure that we can hear everything for the podcast. So thank you very much, Logan, for coming on the show. As a little background so that other people know kind of how this started, Logan sent me an email uh, a couple weeks ago about one of the shows and kind of was talking about things that he was working on that might be interesting topics for the show. Um, and that's when I said, Hey, why don't you come on and we'll talk about these things. So this was kind of serendipitous in a way to, to get us together. So thank you very much for coming on the show. And I, maybe to start, just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about what you're working on. I know you can't get too in depth on that. All right. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really honored to be the first guest and never thought that this would happen, but I really appreciate it. A little bit about myself. I grew up in the Chicagoland area. That's where I'm from. And I, I'm currently studying aeronautical and astronautical engineering at Purdue University in West Lafayette. Uh, I interned at Explore Aerospace, which you might have heard of, in Mojave, California, back in 2014. I graduated with my bachelor's degree from Purdue in 2015 and then went into the master's program in rocket propulsion. And my research is on storable propellants, storable rocket propellants, which is a topic that I'd like to talk with you about today. So I feel like at some other point, X-Core would be an interesting topic to talk about. Uh, I'm sure you've been following along with some of the stuff that's been going on with them recently. Um, we don't have to get too often to that today just because I don't want to sidetrack from what our topic is. I know that uh, one of the things you brought up was that storable propellants are kind of in an interesting spot right now where there's a lot of change going on, uh, or at least a lot of research going into new and different kinds that we haven't used in the past um, that could have some pretty big effects over the next couple of years, but you know, if you want to give us some background on that with how we got here today. Yeah. Uh, so just for everybody that doesn't know, a storable propellant is the contrast to a cryogenic propellant. So your liquid hydrogen and your liquid oxygen systems that would just boil away if you left them unchecked. With a storable propellant, you can just leave it in a tank, on the shelf, whatever you want, and it'll be ready to go when you need it. Uh, so you can imagine, say, a missile silo that has 20 years of sitting there without being used at all. Uh, but it needs to be ready at a moment's notice. So for the guy designing that system, you know, storability is a really huge concern. So within the category of storable propellants, there's really two subsets. There's the monoprops, which use your you know, single liquid and decompose them. Uh, an example of that would be hydrogen peroxide that was used on the mercury capsule for their attitude control. Now the hydrogen peroxide that you or I could buy at uh, pharmacy is around 3%. The stuff used as a monoprop in rockets is over 90% concentrated peroxide. Another example that's still in use today is hydrazine, which is a chemical used in the pharmaceutical industry uh, for making pharmaceuticals and in the polymer production industry. 
uh, both of those, when you expose them to a catalyst, they very quickly and energetically decompose. So now you can see the advantage of using these sort of fuels is that they're incredibly simple. You can have just a fuel tank that you don't need to worry about keeping cold. Uh, you have a catalyst bed somewhere downstream of your system, and you just have a, a valve that you can control your entire rocket with, simple on-off run valve. Now, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, I understand, but that's essentially it. Uh, and then the second category of storable propellants is biprops. So these are like your typical launch vehicles that have a separate fuel and oxidizer. Now, I work specifically with hypogallic biprops. These are combinations of fuel and oxidizer that combust on contact with each other without requiring any other separate source of ignition. Uh, all other biprops require some kind of a spark or a torch, a match, whatever, to get it started. So the hypergallic, or hypergall for short, reactions tend to happen incredibly quickly, like on the order of milliseconds. So your blinking has your eyes closed for over 100 milliseconds. And your typical time for like a hypergall fuel oxidizer, when they contact or when they combust, is around 3 milliseconds. So we could do back-to-back -back 30 hypergall ignitions, and if you blink, you'd miss all of them. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, so in my work, we, we use very high-speed, uh, high-resolution cameras, high-speed data acquisition systems, that can resolve those events at the time scale. You know, thousands of hertz, thousands of frames a second, capture every little detail about what's happening in something that's over, you know, just like that, snap of the finger. Uh, so going a little bit into the history of hypergalls, the hypergalls have really been around as long as bi-prop rockets have. So Robert Goddard, you know, the first guy who launched a liquid-fueled rocket, he worked on hypergalls back in the 40s. The Gemini capsules, RCS, was one of the first systems to use the now most commonly used uh, the fuel, and I understand this is a mouthful, it's monomethylhydrazine, which I'll call MMH, and then the oxidizer is nitrogen tetroxide, which I'll call NTO for short. Uh, so historically, hypergalls were used for their very short response times and high reliability. So the space shuttle, when it was flying, used MMH and NTO in its orbital maneuvering and attitude control systems. Uh, you can imagine trying to dock with the space station, being just a few meters away, the ability to do several really quick odd-off pulses will give you really precise delta B uh, and make it so that you don't crash full steam into the station. Uh, another example of the Apollo lunar module used the reliability of hypergalls to ensure that their ascent engine would start so that they could leave the moon. The astronauts and the NASA scientists, they both knew they didn't want the remotest possibility of having to fix a broken ignition system while on the lunar surface. So they needed something that would go when they needed to go, and hypergalls were their answer. So that kind of brings us to where we're at today, which is uh, the storable propellants. We use monoprops, uh, hydrazine, peroxide to a lesser extent. Hydrazine is the big one, and then the biprop combo of MMH and NTO. They're both used extensively today. Uh, there's some other hydrazine derivatives that are also being used, but those three are the big ones. So SpaceX uses MMH and NTO for their Draco thrusters currently on the Dragon capsule. Uh, they also use it on their larger Super Dracos that are on the Dragon 2. Uh, Anthony, have you seen the SpaceX pad abort test? That is one of the one of my favorite videos over the last couple of years because I love to watch how fast uh, the Dragon 2 is accelerating by the time it's to the top of the frame of the video. I'll put that in the show notes because if you haven't seen that video, you should definitely go check that out. So a thing to note on that video is right at the end, shut down of the engines. Uh, there's a little orange cloud that you can see uh, coming out of the engine. And that's the oxidizer, that's NTO, the fumes that it gives off uh, 
nitrogen dioxide. But it's it's a really impressive video, and it really shows the power behind hydrogels. There's a lot of power in those in those propellants. Orbital ATK also uses MMHNTO for their Cygnus spacecraft. Long duration satellites use these propellants. For instance, the James Webb Space Telescope will use hydrazine and NTO to maintain its orbit out at L2. I know you mentioned on the previous podcast how China's Long March rocket, their next gen rocket, is going to stop using hydrogels uh, in the future. And I think that really leaves only the Indian Space Agency as the only one left using hydrogels at launch, uh, which was a really popular thing to do back in the day. But there's a reason that most people are bailing it out. And that's because what I haven't mentioned yet is that hydrazine, MMH, and NTO, all three of those are really, really toxic. So NTO, for instance, reacts with any moisture that's on your body uh, or in your body to form nitric acid, which is not good for you. Hydrazine, MMH are both carcinogens. OSHA puts their exposure limit for working with MMH at less than one part per million. So you don't want to be anywhere near that. Anytime that people are working with these propellants, uh, the technicians that are fueling the spacecraft need to be in full personal protective equipment. Basically a hazmat suit with a hose providing you clean air to breathe from outside. So the difficulties that this puts on normal operations like transportation of fuel, uh, storage, loading, propellant, it's a huge time and money sink. And let alone it's a huge environmental concern. If there was a spill, you know, the environmental concern is pretty, pretty crazy. Um, but that is exactly where some propulsion engineers and some chemists really see an opportunity. So the at uh, at Kennedy Space Center down there, I was down there uh, for the first launch of Orion. I was part of the NASA NASA social for that launch, and they were taking us on the tour. Um, and we actually got to go see the hazardous payload processing facility, uh, which is where everything that has to be loaded up with hydrazine or, or the related things like you're talking about has to go through uh, just to, to deal with the handling. Like you were saying, all of the different hazmat suits you got to wear, every precaution you have to take when you're loading it up uh, for launch. So is that, you know, with these new generation of fuels that we're talking about, is this something that, that is going to go away completely or is just going to be made better? Yeah, uh, that's exactly what people are working towards. And um, so in different industries, kind of, you know, all over the world, there's a push to go green. You hear that all over the place. And storable propellants really aren't any different. So the hope is to find something that's safer to handle uh, than the current propellants in use today, like I've been describing. But the tough part is not sacrificing on your engine's performance, ideally increasing your performance, but that's a, that's a tough thing to do. So... Uh, just recently in Europe, hydrazine was deemed a substance of very high concern, is what they called it. Uh, so this led ESA to fear that the future of hydrazine might be restricted in some way. It's just like how the fears of bans on Russian-built engines has pushed the development of American-made engines. The potential for a European ban on hydrazine has pushed the development of alternatives over there. So they've been looking at a monoprop. Uh, it's memorably named... LMP-103S, for anyone who wants to look it up, and it would be a replacement for hydrazine, basically a one-to-one replacement, which is really nice. So the initial calculations and testing really show promise. Uh, It has a higher ISP than hydrazine. It's also significantly denser than hydrazine, so you're able to fit more mass into the same size tank. That's a pretty important part, too, because if we think about, uh, you know, what we've talked about a lot is the upgrades to Falcon 9 over the past couple months. 
have been thanks to densification of the propellant in that, uh, where they're putting more propellant in the same amount of volume. And that was something that took their performance to a ridiculous level above what they were seeing before with the Falcon 9. So if that's like a side effect benefit, you know, you listed that as the last benefit of that thing. Um, but you might be burying the lead a little bit on there. Yeah, it, it's definitely something that in my field, it's something that we can really point to as, you know, this is a great propellant in that department. It's density ISP is better than MMHNCO, it's better than hydrazine. That sort of a thing is something that uh, propellant engineers really look for in their fuel. And yeah, that, that note with SpaceX, it's exactly what they're trying. It's the exact same thing. You're able to get a lot more performance out of the same volume. Um, so back to storable propellants real quick. In the U.S., I mentioned Europe. In the U.S., the Air Force Research Lab has developed a monoprop, also hoping to replace hydrazine in U.S. systems. So keeping with the tradition, you know, they memorably named their school AFM-315E. Uh, so you can see sort of a trend there with many of these fuels. Uh, but this fuel also has performance on par with hydrazine, and it is, again, much denser, so it leads to a more volumetrically efficient propellant loading is something that is obviously a pretty huge benefit. So NASA plans to fly a demonstration mission of that AFM-315E on a Falcon 9 Heavy in 2017, and they hope to prove that that sort of a propellant works as expected in space. So those two fuels, the one from the Air Force and the one from ESA, are both monoprops, and they could very well replace hydrazine in the coming years. I can totally see that happening. Uh, Working to find a green alternative to hypergolic biprops is still ongoing. Uh, the main difficulty in that is, aside from their acute and chronic toxicity, MMH and NTO are really, really good rocket fuels. Very high performing, a lot of energy there, quite high density, so they're tough to beat. Uh, finding an alternate com combination that matches on performance is difficult to start with, but add on top of that, that the majority of things that you or I would consider safe, safe enough to call a green alternative to these fuels, we consider it safe exactly because they don't spontaneously combust with other things. Right, we're trying to find a safe explosion. Exactly. It's, it's really challenging to match those ignition delays of three milliseconds uh, and something that's really, really reactive in the combustion chamber, but then is essentially benign outside of the combustion chamber. That's a pretty order for anybody working on that on that problem and that's exactly what I work on so the lab that I work at here at Purdue is working on that problem uh, there's numerous other researchers around the world who are also looking at that problem but with the entirety of chemistry you know available it takes some well-educated guesses a lot of trial and error and a little bit of luck to find a hypergill that has a real chance of getting flown in space uh, but that's really the goal of anyone working on these sort of projects, and it's what keeps us going every day. Just talking about the potential uses for these different propellants in the future, um, you know, it's, we talked about China's phasing out uh, their old generation of rockets. Their new generation is going to have, uh, I think it was Carolox the last time I looked, and a lot of you know the newer upper stages that people are working on. ULA is working on their new Aces upper stage, which is going to have some better cryogenic storage it's going to be using. Uh, it's kind of a crazy system that where it uses this kind of smaller motor to keep things uh, cool enough to be stored for longer periods of time. We have uh, things like SpaceX working on their Raptor upper stage, which is going to be methane driven. Uh, there's a lot of work into 
these more energetic upper stages. And I'm just wondering what, you know, in particular, the uses of these other hypergolic propellants that we're talking about, where are they going to fit in uh, over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I find that that ACES upper stage from ULA, their idea that it'll fly on the Vulcan booster and that it would use the boil-off gases of uh, hydrogen and oxygen to generate vehicle power, which would eliminate their batteries, their onboarding batteries. And then also in their reaction control thrusters, so they completely eliminate hydrazine from their equation, using only hydrogen and oxygen, just their normal propellants. Uh, they claim that their system will be able to support up to one week long duration emissions, uh, which is quite impressive for a cryogenic system. Uh, so I can see that if successful, you know, the ACES stage and the Raptor upper stage will take a little bit of a bite out of the market share of storable propellants. But for satellites that are in orbit for several years, I still think storable propellants are the way to go. And it's so on that front, I, I know that some of the recent satellites that have been going up, uh, specifically a Boeing satellite bus that they've been selling recently, has been uh, using solar electric propulsion. And I know that's still very early days. There's been just a handful of satellites that have went up with that. A lot, a lot of them are still using the propellants we're talking about today. But is there any thought on you know whether solar electric propulsion will actually take away a lot of the usage of these propellants, or is it something that's like? You know the, the the benefits that we're talking about, where you're going to be able to fit more of this in the same amount of volume. Are those benefits going to outweigh uh, any other benefits that people would be looking at in other areas? I, I see the reason that we've been talking today is because we see the future, both of us, as being really uh, fluid right now. That it could go in a bunch of different directions, and it's on the verge of some significant. So the push to go green in monoprops and biprops uh, is very strong, and there is some real progress being made. And it would be nice if you have a design for a spacecraft that uses hydrazine, and if instead of loading it with hydrazine, you load it with AFM-315E, and it's ready to go. No need to redesign your spacecraft in any way. It's just a one-to-one -one switch out. And I think that's something that there's a lot of progress being made, and that people are really working towards and hopefully will have flying soon. I, like I said, I could see the ESA, uh, I could see the ESA propellant being used as a hydrazine substitute very soon. Um, but with the technological advances being made, you know, all the time in aerospace, like ULA's ACE system and the advances in electric propulsion, solar propulsion, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for designers to look at alternates to the current status quo. And I think it is an exciting time to be a spacecraft designer and a propulsion designer because you do have all these options that you can look into. One thing I'm wondering, I, I was kind of thinking about this all day, getting ready to talk to you. And, uh, you know, we're in this kind of small sat movement right now where you're able to build satellites at a, a very small scale that are pretty powerful just because we've been miniaturizing things for so long. And, uh, you know, that led to a lot of things like different academic programs using CubeSats and other things like that to do research uh, kind of as, as ride-along payloads on these different launches and things like that. But, you know, none of them are going to go through hazardous payload processing uh, when they're these kind of, you know, almost throwaway satellites. Uh, I'm wondering if, if a fuel is developed that's safe enough uh, and that's, you know, maybe not some of the other ones where we're talking about finding a safe explosion, but something that is storable and pretty safe to use, if that would lead to uh, use in the smaller sats where it's, you know, you don't have as much 
to go through to actually get something into orbit with all of that propellant aboard. If that's something that could be useful in the small sat space, you know, a few years from now and, and we start to get small satellites with the capability of maneuvering and orienting themselves and, you know, doing the on-orbit operations like the larger satellites have been doing for so many years. For sure, yeah. Um, if you go on, uh, go on the internet, if you go on SigmaAldrich.com, uh, they're a chemical supplier, you can buy hypergolic green fuel that you can use with a, in a normal laboratory setting. You don't need for a positive pressure hazmat suit, anything like that. You just have on your lab coat and gloves, and they'll sell it to you for comparable price. It might even be less, I don't know, to MMH and NTO. So you could feasibly, if you're making a CubeSat, you could buy those propellants and load them yourselves in your backyard, and you're ready to go. And that's, I, I might have undersold how the health benefits and how, you know, we're trying to find something that is that controlled explosion in a rocket chamber, but that we can handle outside of the rocket chamber just fine. And there is a lot of work being done still to get that performance match, but a CubeSat isn't necessarily trying to maximize its ISP. It wants something that you can load easily and not have to go through that whole hazmat procedure. And that is something that has been done, and that is an option today, that you could easily get those sort of tools and load them today. I, I find it interesting that uh, when you were talking about the history of, you know, all of these different propellants and how we got here, you skipped from 1972 straight mm -hmm. to today. Uh, and, you know, that's I feel like that's a common theme right now in the industry where it was kind of just status quo for, for two decades almost, maybe in three decades in some cases. And there's all of this new upheaval happening. And I think, you know, mostly everyone that is talking about that is talking about SpaceX, Blue Origin, people doing things differently you know, invisible ways where it's these giant launch vehicles that are that are going up and coming back down and landing. But really, this is a trend that's across every part of the industry. You talk about launch vehicles, you talk about propellants like this, even the miniaturization like we were talking about with small sats. There's so many different cases where things have been static for decades and now have, have seen a lot of change. So is there kind of the similar feeling uh, in terms of hypergolic propellants, storable propellants in, that we see with, uh, you know, all of the upheaval that SpaceX brought to the launch market? There definitely is a push uh, as of late to have green hypergolic propellants, green storable propellants in, in space soon, to have a good timetable for that. But the look into alternate propellants, MMH and NTO, like I said, were used first on the Gemini spacecraft, which was back in the 60s. Um, and since then, they have been the propellants of use. And there have been people since then looking into new propellants to change those and haven't come up with a good enough uh, propellant combination to replace those systems. So I don't want to make it seem like, you know, we started working on this a couple of years ago as SpaceX started getting going and as Blue Origin started getting going. Uh, it's been a long process of people looking at a bunch of different options, the entire library of chemistry, you know, maybe this chemical will work. We test it. No, that wasn't good enough. Maybe this chemical will work. And you can see how long that would take going through every chemical imaginable. Yeah, and this is definitely stuff that you can't do, you know, you can't really do in environment tests until you've got all the way out to your operating environment. So it's not something that is as easily testable as, you know, like we've seen with Blue Origins test flights where they can fly these things pretty frequently. Uh, this is something that has a longer life cycle. So it's, makes sense why these things have, have taken longer to get going. 
Yeah, and it's exactly the problem. You don't want to find out that your storable propellant only lasts a year. You had loaded it into your spacecraft that needs to last for five years or whatever. So you need to do that minimum of five years of testing, and that means that your testing program is a minimum of five years long plus all the rest of it. So it is definitely a very difficult problem to tackle. There's a lot of smart people working on it, and I at least have some hope for the future that we'll find something soon enough. Are there any other uh, just general, I know we probably only have a few minutes left, but is there any other particular project or program in general in spaceflight that's that's of interest to you or any other topics that kind of, you know, you always find yourself reading about or interested in? I know we talked about ACEs a bit as something that is just like a, a very new way of thinking about it or new way of using, you know, excess boil off kind of, you know, in a in a way that is helpful for the mission at large. Is that something that in general you like that kind of you know, using what is there already to to help out your mission? Sure. I, the thing that I found interesting about ACEs and with their new upper stage, with ULA's new upper stage in general, and this goes back to my X-Core point that I know you wanted to get back to. Um, so X-Core uses pistons and instead of turbo pumps to pump the propellants into their uh, combustion chamber. And the ACEs engine, or the ACEs upper stage, is going to use a piston engine made by Rouse racing company uh, and that's what's going to power everything so I think that as well as a kind of paradigm changer thinking differently than everybody else everybody else is using turbo pumps why aren't we using piston pumps there is a reason but if you can work around that reason then you know there's a lot of things that you can do with that sort of system and I like that style of thinking um, SpaceX is definitely doing it ULA is doing it to a certain extent uh, Blue Origin is definitely doing it and it's, it's an exciting time to be in the industry and see, you know, all of these different directions that we can go in and kind of have the horizon uh, in front of you and you can just go in any direction that you feel. That's a good point about, about ULA using, you know, something different than and everyone else is doing. Because I, I know I haven't been like too kind to them in the past about the way they're going about their problems in, in general, but there are these hints of, of ways that they're thinking outside the box entirely uh, and kind of doing their own thing. And, and that's one that, to me, has a lot more promise than, than some of the other things that they're working on right now. So that's really cool to hear about. All right. Well, we probably are just about out of time, but thank you again for coming on. And we will probably talk in the future, maybe, uh, you know, as, as the NASA mission gets closer to launching, uh, we can have you back to talk about that. Yeah, it sounds like a good time. Thank you. And with that, that's all I have for the show today. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Logan. If you have any feedback about what we talked about today or any ideas for future topics or interviewees, please email me, anthony at mainenginecutoff.com. I'd love to hear from you. I will put some show notes together with links of things that we talked about in the course of the interview. You can find those at any time at mainenginecutoff.com. And again, I do apologize if we did have any audio issues today in the podcast, and I will be working on improving the interview setup as we do more of these in the future. So thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. 